Happy holidays, everybody. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. Oh, man. Can you feel it, Taylor? It's that time of year. <laughs> Ugh. Well, I hate to break it to you, but we are traveling this week. We are with our families, and we have put together a mega episode for you. We got two, two, count them, count them, <laughs> folks, two topics coming at you, some warm holiday feelings. Um, what do we got, Taylor? We're doing the Hallmark episode. For all of the good feeling holiday cheer, mm-hmm. and then also murder and, <laughs> and mayhem with Die Hard this Christmas. So if you don't like one, why not? Just stick around, <laughs> learn both, tis the season. We hope the holidays find you safe and merry. We hope you guys have a wonderful time, and we will catch you back next week. Um, Until then, stay safe and enjoy. Hey there, everyone. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read some stuff this week. I watched a movie. This week, we are doing the Christmas Hallmark movie phenomenon. This is not a Hallmark movie, but I watched A California Christmas, which is number one on Netflix right now. This is kind of how we led to this. Uh, An interesting in on how these movies typically go, and now maybe somebody has some sort of fresh just spin on, oh, it's going to be about the guy in this time. But Hallmark movies. Bizarre. How how (laughs) romance Christmas. We didn't realize we went down the rabbit hole. We're going to talk about what makes a Hallmark movie and then how a greeting card company became one of the biggest production companies specifically for this season. Yeah. They started a thing in the 2010s called the Countdown to Christmas, where they release a new Christmas movie every day. Oh, my God. And uh, they make half a billion dollars in ad revenue. Oh, my God. For the 100 days after Halloween to the end of the year. And this is some of the demographic stuff, but women 18 to 54 watched this channel the most in at really? the end of the year time frame. Yeah. Seventy two million people watched the countdown to Christmas last oh my year. God. Some people have it on all the time. Or it's that's you know. how many people voted <laughs> on, <laughs> on, on one side. God God. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> it's pretty crazy how prolific it is. And it's only increased. So like in terms of original holiday films, in 2010 they only made six and then in 2016, they made 28 that year. And then this year in 2020, in spite of the coronavirus, they made 40. Oh, my God. They're out year. of control. They're actually out of control. I was like, yeah. we're going to have to play it up. Like, they're out of control. It's a virus. It's a virus that we got to contain. No, they actually are out of control. That's so much worse than I thought it yeah. could possibly and that's, be. We're, we're just talking about the Hallmark Channel, not Netflix, which had made 20 this year for uh which and even netflix is not all their own productions and shows like they bought you know the holiday bake-off and various other things no hallmark just made exactly with with a cat with a california christmas this is something that they just bought it's shot to number one so we we picked it and thought it was an interesting way to open up this hallmark craze but yeah uh i was kind of disappointed in in that i i I was expecting it to be you know like when we talk about hallmark christmas we're thinking a a woman uh who needs a man in a small mountain town and it's got a ranch and the ranch is in in trouble you you know like it's Mm -hmm. it's got all those kind of antiquities those kind of stars around it 
but I thought a California Christmas. Oh man, it's going to be sunny. It's going to be bright. We're going to go to like California scapes, which is vast. You can, if you can feel like you're all over the world in California, I was really like, okay, interesting. And I got the idea quickly that it was focused more from the man's point of view. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. That's also tricky waters. How are they going to navigate this? But it is number one on Netflix. Let's give it a shot. And I was really quickly let down to see that it is set in a small town, <laughs> Northern California wine country town. And so everything is just copy and paste the same things you would find in any of the Hallmark Christmas, you know, typical Christmas right. movies. Uh, and I thought there was more opportunity to really like, like, why should I care about this guy? He's spoiled and rich and has everything. He's got ladies and he takes everything for granted. So I don't, I'm not rooting for him. And I thought if there was room there for in this character for a want and a need in him that it, when if the night before, if he's, you know, if I see how he swindles this girl and I get a glimpse into like, oh, dad's out of the picture. Uh, that's that right there is a whole thing. Mom doesn't have time because she's running the company. That's compounding dramatic pressure right there. I, I If you had just five minutes, something, a scene that gave me more into what is missing in his life, then I would have a bit of a different perspective of what yeah. this whole movie was saying. Well, I think also you're looking at it very filmically. And the the question hopefully we'll be able to answer is like, why does the lack of quality not matter? Why? Know, and <laughs> I've, watched a, I've watched a video that said like, there is a drive for unsophisticated, and that is the word that they use, unsophisticated programming that is just inoffensive and is just easily permissible to put on TV and run yeah. by. And they use the word unsophisticated. And I kept thinking about that because I'm like, what I just suggested adding doesn't really elevate the quality of filmmaking, but it, it does everything to get me involved, I feel like. So I'm like, is that right. sophisticated? I don't know. I could have that conversation all yeah. day, <laughs> Well, let's just talk about what... So a lot of these are based on books, which is also why we're covering it. And the plot lines, though, like you're saying, are so recycled, they even get accused of stealing from themselves. Embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Here's some of the trademarks of the format for the setting, as you mentioned, idyllic small towns, even with the the classic names, Angel Falls, Evergreen. <laughs> like they're, They all fit into that right. paradigm. They're all... The world is idealized. It's interesting also that- Like a Thomas Kincaid painting. Exactly. If you know Thomas Kincaid, it's all lush and beautiful mm -hmm. and soft. And the only thing that people care about in these towns are Christmas. Like nothing else exists except getting in the spirit of the season. It's like Google, but everybody's yeah. middle class. Right. And they, <laughs> like they want you to feel like a kid on Christmas morning because you forgot what Christmas was about and nothing else. There's no politics. There's no pop culture. There's nothing in these towns except Christmas. On that note, I feel like these have aesthetically wandered into a space where they feel so out of time and out of touch that they feel like older movies. Mm -hmm. that they actually feel like a like maybe a, a Disney's live action movie from the 50s or 60s. Actually. Well, that's definitely you're 100% right. That's what they're pulling from. And in terms of the plot, they all are about basically the same thing. So main character, independent woman with an interesting job. And throughout the story, there becomes some appealing romantic prospect. She's usually facing some sort of stress, either a problem with said interesting job and always single in the holidays and always heading back to that hometown. And by the right. end, <laughs> finds a pr like that's literally basically every single one plug and play you can say literally any premise idea that you have like evan was saying before we started recording finding a stray cat laid so and so it's like you or 
just pick a character idea, cupcake artist. <laughs> so and like they've made it, you know. The other thing is they have Santa because, is on trial. Yeah, <laughs> anything Christmassy as an idea will be turned into a Hallmark movie. They also, because it's on television, they have a very distinct writing style. So they each have nine acts, which then hit specific plot points within each one. So there's always the meet cute in act one before the commercial break. There's the almost kiss in act seven and the almost breakup at the end of act eight. And then of course at the end, which is very Quit reading my schedule, <laughs> <laughs> my life. In nine acts. my diary <laughs> but there's always a happy and chaste ending a pg kiss at the end and that's uh, also what they're known for is being very very inoffensive geez. yeah as yeah, a part yeah. of the plot but it, it always ends with it bows at the end <laughs> it always just ends with a kiss the other tropes that then netflix has pulled from more recently so one of the things that comes up is hiring a fake boyfriend to save face during the holidays because a lot of these women are single during the holidays and that's the conflict uh-huh. and then the romance blossoms between this fake boyfriend netflix that was like their first big christmas thing this year was the holiday where this girl gets this guy to go with her for christmas that's like a classic hallmark oh, yes trope. but that was a big one that came out recently and then uh, as you said in terms of santa stuff the potentially magical realism guardian angels or there's like a jolly bearded janitor or homeless man that just might be santa claus in the flesh <laughs> That happens a lot. And then in terms of adaptations, they rip off a lot of stuff. So it's like, take the Christmas Carol idea of a Scrooge-like person or a Cinderella kind of rip off uh, this girl who then ends up being the heir to the castle. And an interesting, I want to give a shout out, a film I haven't seen yet, but I think it's worth talking about in this context. There was a film just released on Hulu that's getting some some praise uh, called Happiest Season. stars mm-hmm. Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Um Stars the two of them as uh, a gay couple who are visiting one of their parents for the Christmas season, but they're not out. And so it's presented as this friend, which I think the premise there is incredible. And in terms of like a, you know, antithesis to the types of films that we're talking about today, this is a very, very serious take on on a very pressing real topic. But I think it's under the guise of exactly this type of format. So I I, I think this is worth just throwing out there. For sure. I'm going to be watching over the next two weeks for sure. Um, uh, I wish yeah. I had the, had the thought to even watch it before this, but well, that's all in the, on Hallmark, right. baby. <laughs> and one of the tropes, which we'll get to the controversy at the end of this, but it's all straight, presumably Christian, mostly white couples that the story centered around. But like I said, we'll get to where Hallmark is now with that. But here's here's all the production factors that go into making these things, because how in the world do they make 40 in time? I can't even fathom Christmas. So. I got this. It's all the pandemic and like (laughs) double down, triple down. (laughs) So the uh, the 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 factors that come into filming four weeks of prep, film in three weeks, which ends up being fifteen days of shooting, which is very hard. That is hard. That is super hard. (laughs) And then like yeah, and then six to eight weeks of post production. A typical film is a, is probably some like you know a a feature length uh, probably shoots for thirty to forty days. Uh, a a low budget film who's really skimping by is is in twenty one is or... in the twenty exactly twenty to twenty five to twenty eight may you know like somewhere in that range so to squeeze this under twenty days four weeks of prep good yeah. god that is <laughs> uh, so if if you've ever planned a wedding um think you got to do that every day every single day you've got to straighten that out for every day for fifteen right. days for twenty days for thirty days forty days. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's madness. So they they know they know what they're doing now. They definitely have a system. One of the things that they systematize, they film in the summer because it's got to get out by Christmas. So a lot of the snow stuff is they use ice or white drapes or things like that. Man, I bet they have so much so much ready to go. Like they have mm-hmm. so much of that material just on lock. <laughs> They make so many of these. Yeah. That. Like, yeah. I want to know how much bulk they're buying of this, like, white foam and all these silly materials. They, uh, they're actually running out of small, cute towns because they often film in Vancouver, but there's only they so shot many them all. within driving distance of the film zone for the tax credits. Yeah, so they're, they're running out of space. Um, That's in, funny. In they're running to, themselves out of town. Yeah. There were, there were some absolutes as well that I thought were fascinating in order to complete all these productions. So in regards to the snow and stuff, none of the plots can revolve around snow, getting snow, the small town that hasn't had snow yet this year. Anything that's a plot device related to snow is not allowed because it could run up the budget if that's the main plot and they've got to integrate it into a scene or make sure that it's Uh snowing outside the window, that kind of thing. Snow can't be the focus. We can't afford it. Right. It can it can be involved. <laughs> we have, like we gotta share snow with 40 other productions, <laughs> all right? You cannot yeah. build a skyscraper of snow. It can't happen. Because they say a business insider estimated that the average film costs two million to produce, which is still a lot to layman's ears, but like we talked about the crown a couple weeks ago, and that's ten million per episode. Wow. So they really do have it laid down. And then in terms of the other absolutes for material. The Christmas must be a part of the story. Obviously, there's lights and trees in the background, but the character transformation has to happen because of Christmas. Because of Christmas, right. yes. <laughs> Which ties into the- It all has to happen by yeah, Christmas. <laughs> the aspirational <laughs> stuff. Uh, and then the last thing for the check, you know, they have like a checklist of elements that have to go in. Like there has to involve a set number of classic Christmas elements like wrapping presents or baking cookies or getting a tree. If you miss out on a certain number of them, it's not going to get through. Like you have to have those in the in the plot. I'm almost wishing they would go. They would let one go further with (laughs) with all with their rules and like build the world. Like it's like when I said Whoville, like actually make them that crazy about Christmas. (laughs) Like they all have like a doomsday clock, but it's for Christmas, and they all have it in (laughs) there. Well, eventually it'll feel like that. I hope. I hope. Hey, if you're listening, Hallmark, call me. Got some (laughs) ideas for you. But here's here's the big question, which I think is the most interesting part of the whole deal. How is this cable network, which is massively successful, makes half a billion dollars? How is it owned and operated by a greeting card company? A greeting card company that makes wrapping paper. And that's what we know them for. But then it's like, oh, here's this whole other diversified interest that maybe have- doesn't even maybe it ties in as like a subsidiary of their business. Like, oh, people are going to buy more greeting cards and wrapping paper. But also, maybe yeah, no, not. let's think about it in, in real terms. So now everybody has, has streaming platform. They're popping up all over the place. I was convinced for two seconds that Domino's had a streaming right. platform the other day just based on a commercial. Uh, everybody has one. If you think about how long it has taken to get to this point and you think about who has had the capability to do it before now, where, you know, and now yeah. it's a bandwagon. Everybody's jumping on. Uh, Hallmark could have done this 10 years ago. almost. <laughs> right. Yeah. They could have really operated this really well. They had they had all the capability to to operate this a decade ago almost. They do have a family friendly streaming platform, and the name escapes me. But it is I read it in some articles and stuff. But it definitely is not to the caliber or to the extent that they could. Yeah, have. But like we said, it's it's maybe even harder because they like so for 2020 they produced 103 original movies, 40 of which, as we said, were about Christmas. 
and they're banking on the Christmas stuff. So would somebody have a streaming service just for Christmas? It's like the Christmas stores that pop up right? or the Christmas tree farms. It's like it might only work for that time. But yeah, it's, it is crazy that they... Well, it's like if I bought Disney, but I really just want Star Wars. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so here's some stats for this. They make $4 billion annually. Super successful, but if you wanted to buy stock, you can't because they're still a family-owned private what? company. No. Yes. No, no. <laughs> yes. They got to break that up, baby. This, no, uh, you can't keep that all for yourself. Let me in. I want to make these cheap. I want to make them. <laughs> I, that was the first thing that blew me away. It's like the, the grandson or whoever, or maybe even the son, is still involved on the board. Oh, and wow. it's still a private company. And they, they I'm amazed that it's not even diversified out that the entertainment port portion of the company isn't actually a, really its own independent It subsidiary. is like it is its own like it is a, it is its own subsidiary. It's called Crown Media, but it's still all privately owned under the Hallmark. Completely under their wing. That's in, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, and they have their own uh production company now, obviously. Well, of course. That. Yeah. But here's Rent. I'll I'll they pay themselves <laughs> for their own equipment. <laughs> yeah. I'll throw out some uh interesting nibs that I didn't realize they were responsible for. So keep that in mind. We'll just start from the beginning. It was started in 1910, the greeting card stuff, by a high school dropout, J.C. Hall. Okay. He is a, just a teenager from Nebraska, and he took two boxes of postcards with him to Kansas City, which is still where their headquarters is located, is in Kansas City, Missouri. And in 1914, his brother Raleigh joined him and formed a company called the Hall Brothers, and they made greeting cards. Which got super popular in World War One because people got to sending cards more to loved ones and soldiers. Oh, that makes sense. That makes tons of sense. So here's nib number one of interest. In 1917, mm -hmm. they're credited with inventing modern what we know as wrapping paper. Because inventing, uh, yes, originally people would just use tissue paper, cover it up, wouldn't be that good, or they would use newspaper or brown paper. But they ran out in their store and they had these fancy French paper slips that were used as uh, envelope lining. So, you know, sometimes if you have a fancy envelope and you open it and it's got like green foil on the inside or whatever. It's like wallpaper for your on <laughs> Right. But they had all these rolls of extra paper and they're like, well, why don't we just cut it up it in into the things? Yeah. Sell it for 10 cents and it and it sold the next day. So that's that fascinating. I've actually thought about that before. I've thought of, just, in any kind of period media wondering when that shift actually came about. <laughs> right. That's so it's, fascinating. And it really was the home, the hallmark people. Yeah, the Hall brothers. They the Hall Brothers, baby. Then in 1932, they're on the forefront of other things. They created a licensing deal with Walt Disney for his characters. So Perfect. Steamboat Willie had just come out a few years ago in 28. And in 32, they're like, hey, we'll, can you, can, we're going to put Mickey Mouse on stuff. Wow. Which is crazy. It's also the connection. They're really on it. Yeah. No, that's amazing. They're like, that's, um, they're right there at the inception of these characters. They're getting going as well. I mean, it seems like it's a symbiotic re mm -hmm. relationship. That's pretty, wow. That makes a ton of sense. They uh, And both of these companies seem to want to lean into the same, you know, conservative, inoffensive di direction. Uh -huh. So that sounds perfect to yeah. me. <laughs> and so a point of connection, how they connect is that uh, JC's wife was in elementary school with Walt. Because he grew up in the no middle. way, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, so it's a mutual thing. And then, so they're building up their business. It's all going well. In the 1950s, they had developed this new card displaying stand, which is basically what we see now in all drugstores. How it's that tiered kind of thing with the labels on the top. Man, they um, really don't change. They like all this stuff. They did it, and they're still doing it. And now <laughs> it's just it. And now, if you're no, if you don't, if you're in this business, you don't do it. You're an idiot. What are you talking about? Yeah, this it's they built the they built the whole format, mm -hmm. and they got <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. So then here we. We go 
the TV side of things. In 1951, direct quote, a note from JC to his sales team, dear fellows, we're going to try our hand at television because now this is big. And there's a lot of uh, advancements that they make in regards to television. So it was this program called the Hallmark Hall of Fame, which continues today. It is the longest running primetime series on television. Basically what they did was they took and made it into sort of an anthology of classic literature and theater works. So they did Shakespeare plays and filmed them. They did biographic subject matter. They did, you know, normal plays, just anything that they could get their hands on to film as a sort of dramatic production. They did. The bona fide, uh, bona fide uh, variety show. Gosh, mm-hmm. I had no idea. Of, of literature and plays and Broadway plays and Shakespeare and stuff like that. They also wow. did one of the first productions in color on television was their thing. And uh, they're blowing my mind. I had no idea these. I, okay. Mm-hmm. I thought interesting conversation company. I don't know much about. I had no idea how actually influential they were. I've got to say, I've right. got to stop right now and just say that <laughs> I, I did not. I did, you know, like legitimately inventing wrapping paper, the greeting card setup, uh, Hallmark Hall and, of and Fame. being Hallmark Hall of Fame right there on the beginnings of of, of TV color variety shows, <laughs> like really delving into the arts. This is ridiculous. <laughs> They also had, so in terms of firsts, they, Hamlet they did was the first presentation of Shakespeare on television. Wow. Hallmark. They say, I don't know if this is true or not, but more people watch that broadcast than people seeing it performed in the 350 years it had been performed on stage. They're like, hey, Whoa. you know, I mean, that's a crazy thing to think about that they, it, who, who had seen Hamlet? Who could pay to see Hamlet in theaters? Right. How many theaters are in towns in America? And then boom, they put it up on TV. Wow. So this thing, like I said, it's the longest running and you won't believe this, but it's also the most award winning series for they have 81 Emmy Awards. Wow. For all aspects, costuming, design, directing, whatever, over all the thousands of different productions that they had put on and filmed, they won. They have won the most Emmy Awards. Good Lord. Any series. This is no joke. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, aha, the Hallmark movie, they carved their own, they made their own way, they carved their own path, they got their own everything, they got their own everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like they've been in the game since the game started. Yeah. They might have start, helped start the game. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of the things, speaking of starting, like you can't hold on to the top spot forever. So American Greetings comes out as another card company and they started <laughs> rival the rival. They started getting big in the early 80s cuz they had a character that they were drawing on their cards called Strawberry Shortcake and then the licensing on that went insane and we know there's an animated show and there's the dolls yeah. and there's all that stuff. So Hallmark shoots back and they create this little girl character Rainbow Bright, which is another staple of the oh, 80s. Wow merchandising and whatnot but that was originally a hallmark thing to compete with strawberry shortcake and now they're going to create characters just out of spite (laughs) 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 oh Uh, yeah strawberry shortcake (laughs) (laughs) um but then so now we're moving past into the uh late 80s and this is big uh nib number three they bought a company called binny and smith but we know them now as crayola and they still hold that so I imagine Hallmark makes a ton of money oh my off gosh. of that stuff, but they're the owners of Crayola and all of the products that come out of that. It's all connected. <laughs> <laughs> they own the card and what you write with on it. Ugh. Um, how wholesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now comes in modern time 
and what we now know is kind of their filming thing. So they formed Crown Media in 91, which then instead of just being the Hall of Fame hallmark, which was broadcast on NBC in primetime, they have their own cable network. Right. Um, and they merged with this other religious network called Odyssey. But then what we now know of it today is this guy, Bill Abbott, who became the CEO in 2009. And he said, oh, I want the channel that we have to feel like walking into a Hallmark store. And I'll post a link because he even said he's very influenced by the Hallmark card commercials that started in the 60s because they just made people cry. And I'll post really? a link to one where this little girl runs up to try and beat her piano teacher to the piano and puts a card in the you know sheet music. So when he opens it up, he sees it and says "Happy Birthday." And it, you didn't you know you just ball your eyes out in these. Oh uh, yeah, okay, I see, I see. They have ones up to modern day with kids going to college and then leaving cards for their parents, and every, it's just beautiful. Everybody loves it. And he's like, well, let's let's start making those kind of things again. Yeah. Instead of just the Hallmark Hall of Fame stuff. Yeah. So. The VP of programming, who is still the VP to this day, Michelle Vickery, she said, we're going to lean into Christmas as a big part of this because that's lean the- in, baby. <laughs> so in 2015, like I said, they started their own production company. And uh, she said, quote, we're not afraid to look at the dailies and call them up and say, not enough Christmas, <laughs> which ties back. to You know what? I've been waiting for somebody to say it finally, <laughs> and I'm glad they did. That's exactly the kind of person I want to work for. <laughs> um I'll tell you right now, Gentry, it's not enough Christmas. It's just not enough. We've got to reshoot. So uh, it's more trees, uh, more bells, all the, all the more smells, all the, (laughs) all the Christmas is not without its controversy, which has just come up in the previous year. So, oh no, Hallmark is controversial. Mm -hmm. Hallmark is, no, what? So the, uh, this guy, Bill Abbott, who I mentioned, who became the CEO a decade before the scandal comes up in 2019, because if you're trying to avoid any political or religious controversy, you're going to attract it by the nature of pushing things away. You are making a statement of some sort. So right. the first thing that that got into it- Not making it, a statement is inadvertently making a statement. <laughs> yeah. Um, in 2019, Lori Laughlin, who was a big actor in Hallmark movies, they dropped her because of the college admission scandal. She was involved in that. Um, yeah, okay. And so they're like, well, we can't have her. So that brought some kind of an issue to to their thing. And then they made a big to new scrutiny. Yeah, they made a big to do about uh, in 2019. They said they were making two movies in relation to Hanukkah, but they didn't have Hanukkah in the title, which every Hallmark movie has some either the word Christmas or some relation to it. So people didn't even know. That well, they, they were, were getting the same phone calls in pre-production. <laughs> Not enough Christmas. Yeah. So it's it was like, like, well, that, it can't be. <laughs> so Bill Abbott tried to defend these things. But really, it's almost... Uh, some would argue putting up Semitic stereotypes because the characters are shown how to do Christmas. You know, they're sounds like, like it would have been horribly forced, and it's probably a good thing they were <laughs> never made. Right. Well, they were made, but it just didn't. Oh happen. no! Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! I was I was so confident. It's like, well, they just no. did, oh, clearly they wouldn't do that. No, they so did. They, yeah. you did oh. So that's the scandal. Is like, oh, here's this person who's Jewish and is shown what Christmas is really all about. Oh, Uh, no. So that happened in 2019. And then the big thing that uh, pushed them over the edge was there was a same-sex commercial for this wedding planning company, and it had a lesbian couple, and they aired the commercials. There were a bunch of different commercials that this company used, and a few of them had same-sex couples. And this anti-gay group gave Hallmark guff, so they pulled the ones that had the gay couples, and then 
got even more flack for that and then brought it back. But the damage was already done. I think it's indicative of what's of what's going on there. I think I think that kind of lays lays bare that they they don't really have much of an agenda, but they can make some ma- m- real mistakes, mm. <laughs> um, yeah. and that you know, they're really just they're trying, like you said at the outset here, they're trying to avoid the controversy, and then that attracts it. Mm-hmm. It's really a sad situation, yeah. I suppose. So Bill Abbott left the company in January of this year, aka was fired. Although Michelle is still the the VP of programming, and I listened to a podcast interview with her, and they were mm. trying to ask, like, well, what's the deal with this? Essentially being like, did Bill just have his way with this? Because he had said it, and I listened to a podcast with him, and his, you know, he gave all these reasons and like, oh, there's only so much time, and we're looking at the material, and uh, very politically saying, well, we don't want to do this sort of stuff. But mm. he was replaced in the summer by this gal, Wanya Lucas, who definitely has an eye for inclusion. She oversaw public broadcasting Atlanta, which includes the NPR okay. and, and PBS stations. And she was working on, you know, for Discovery, a lot of mm-hmm. producerial stuff in television stations. But for this year, which is kind of interesting, a lot of the slate was already decided and they were already in production, you know, in the summer and whatnot. And then with coronavirus, but they did have for the first time this year, the first film that featured a gay couple called The Christmas House was, uh, well, that's fantastic. was under her watch. And then Michelle... Vickery is saying, yes, we're adding more. Wow. There was another film also called Love Lights Hanukkah that writes the wrongs of the previous one. It's got Hanukkah in the title, and it's about this woman who recognizes her Jewish heritage and learns about her family, faith, and community, and it directly ties into religion as a as a Christmas or I hope it says something concept. that she has a place within her community and can, <laughs> right. can be have her own identity please right. and like and like you said with Hulu's happiest season about the LGBTQ couple coming home right. there's a, been other companies that have sort of filled in the gap this year at least so Netflix had Jingle Jangle predominantly performers of color you know dance numbers a broad oh, yes. style thing that came out this year and then Lifetime had a film about a Chinese American woman coming back home for some sort of a cooking competition. I find it so fascinating that they've just completely back, they just flip flopped back and forth on the, like they did those commercials mm-hmm. and then they got flack for it and then they pulled it. <laughs> right. And then they got more flack for pulling it because obviously, <laughs> and, and then they put them back. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you made the right decision the first time by just making the commercials and putting them out there and being done with it. It's just so interesting that they actually did it, that they felt the pressure and made the decisions to do it. Okay, now we need to, and now we're going to, hold on. That's fascinating. Right. Uh, and you might say, and that's just what Michelle was tr- maybe saying, but not really saying in this interview. It's like the, the leadership does come from the top. So yes. if it's this Bill Abbott guy who has been responsible for it for the past 10 years, he had maybe made the final say and now they they're hiring more yeah. writers of a diverse background and past that or past that people. hill now that's yeah. really interesting and i think and, yeah rounding it out yeah, with yeah. uh rounding it out with sort of w- the answer to why this cultural obsession and it's interesting how it's changing this year and onward forever with these other companies and hallmark it's like like you said it feels like a nod to the inoffensive chaste fair of the 50s and 60s and then also right. feels like a throwback to the 70s and 80s, these TV movies that have special guest stars. Like Mariah Carey was in some Hallmark movie 
this past right like, you know, they, like they, they'll take like flash pan a-listers who were child stars in like right, 80s right. and 90s sitcoms and make them the main character of these things right. which is really i mean it, it, that draws in a huge crowd i know that you know people like my parents and you know maybe some people slightly younger i mean have definitely yeah. been drawn in by things just as simple as that it's like oh man they were on party of five mm-hmm. interesting and that that is enough to have it just on tv and on in the background and nobody paying attention to it but they kept it on because they saw that that one face that they hadn't seen in 15 years well and at the end of the day also people want like you said an unsophisticated so like all the problems that these movies have from a review that i saw that movie happiest season it it still has the same if you don't like this genre or style or feel goodery of a rom-com like it's this is my favorite kind of movie, Taylor. I watch these. I watch these out of season. I watch these every week. <laughs> this is my. This is what I love. Well, yeah, but it will still have. It's good. It's like it's a good situation to be in, where it's like you're getting movies of all these kinds, and they still are the same cheesy silliness. But at least there's more to them in terms of the content, right? As, you know, and I think what they're leaning away from as Michelle had said in this podcast, is it's not damsels in distress. Like falling in love doesn't come from falling off a ladder into some guy's arms. It's, oh, I'm seeing the goodness in this other person. Right. And I think that's that's exactly where a California Christmas, you know, doesn't think it through where it's at the end of the day he still saves their ranch (laughs) like so they're in they're living wine country and uh they'd never thought that their little uh gifting wine that they give to family and friends they'd never thought to actually bottle and sell that before until the outsider from from the city came out with his new ideas and lo and behold save the ranch they never had that idea living in wine country on a farm where they (laughs) i don't know so there's there's a lot of work uh to be done here in this genre and i think that people are really smelling blood they're smelling like fresh meat here <laughs> like what can we do and so it's i'm excited we'll see yeah we'll see it's it just that's the tale of uh hallmark and all of the things that they've done i'm absolutely baffled <laughs> by some of this to be honest and they're gonna continue to make you know probably 80 movies next year oh my god <laughs> they're they are a virus they're the new virus and we must stop them everybody's in the game now <laughs> Um, but yeah, reach out to us uh, if you watch this these sorts of things, if they bring warm and fuzzies to your heart or if you're sick of them, either way. Yeah, if we miss something, then we, there might be a whole aspect of these things that we're totally disregarding and didn't bring up. That's a, that's a valid point. Uh, but yeah, what did you guys, what do you guys think about these types of this disposable, are they disposable? These disposable Hallmark Christmas romance movies. Uh, thank you guys for listening to us. Reach out at AlliteratePod on Instagram and we will catch you next week. Seasons greetings everyone. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a movie this week. We are covering one of the best Christmas movies I've ever watched. Die Hard. I know it's not a hot new release, but it is hot right now. I've been seeing a lot of conversations about it. And and generally, anytime we get to this time of the year, it tends to come up. And you know what? I had never seen this film before. And so we were approaching the Christmas season. And it's based on a book. You would never know. I thought, what an incredible opportunity to widen the lens on this. Let's give the context here. What is Die Hard? Where did it come from? Who's responsible? Oh, my God. It's based on a book. Come along. I'm excited. Taylor. The... Ultimate question, is it a Christmas movie? 
there was a survey by The Hollywood Reporter. A quarter of Americans say it's a Christmas film. Mm. So we have to go straight to the source. In 2018, Fox, they said it was the greatest Christmas story ever told. They made a great trailer in-house. Oh, man. Like a Hallmark kind of rom com <laughs> So they think it is, obviously, yeah. for the marketing. Bruce Willis notoriously had said it was not in an interview. Oh. No. <laughs> but the, the writer, Stephen D'Souza, said in a recent interview just a couple of days ago, it was. But of course, he said it humorously. I'll post a link to the interview, but he had a Christmas movie checklist comparing it to White Christmas. Oh, whoa. And has just kind of all of these funny comparisons between the two, specifically the body count, because 23 people die in Die Hard. But White Christmas, the opening scene, takes place in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. So he's like, well, that has a body count of 26,000. Oh my so if you're talking God. about, well, just <laughs> in the context of like off screen, that's how many people of course, die. No, I know. I, 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 I get you. That is, that's hilarious. <laughs> so he's, so I'll post a link to that. He's got all these wacky comparisons between the two. And if you want to call this a Christmas movie, well, then you should call Die Hard a Christmas movie as well. I mean, I'm looking at it as like, well, is Christmas central to the jump off here? I mean. This is a beefy movie, so I don't know how spoilery this is, but if you don't know, Die Hard is about a, a beat cop from New York who's flying across the country to L.A. so that he can go to the Christmas party in this posh new uprise scale building that his now kind of a seemingly estranged wife has gotten a new job in. Um, so right off the bat, we're with him in uh, on the plane where we get the idea that his marriage is a bit off the rocks and he's going in and just trying to get back with her. We're going to see the kids. And that's where we are. We're just getting to know him. We're on a plane. We're going to a Christmas party. He's got a big dumb bear. And, and that's <laughs> that's the setup for this movie. And it takes off from there. But I would say that the catalyst from this, I mean, it's inherently Christmas. He's flying across the country for a Christmas party to see his kids for Christmas. Uh, yeah. <sighs> Christmas is really, really right in there <laughs> which you don't expect with an action movie right and, and it's not playing you like it's an action you know he's not like on a helicopter landing on a base going like i'm going to see my kids you know like that's that this is not, this is just a guy on an airplane and then somebody another passenger sees his gun he goes no nah, i'm a cop it's all right right and it was also 88 so <laughs> you can have a gun yeah very uh dated so let's talk about the <laughs> book and where this comes from and how it's actually a sequel to, to another <laughs> thing that got adapted. The book is called Nothing Lasts Forever, which speaks to the darker- That's a great title. <laughs> it sounds like the 80s also, but it, it, sounds the like book James Bond. has a much darker tone than the movie we know as Die Hard. Mm. The book came out in 79. Roderick Thorpe is the guy's name. He had written another novel in 66 called The Detective, and this is utilizing the same character, and he references what happened in the book The Detective. So it is a true blue sequel. Um, oh, my gosh. Which the film then changes around quite a few things, but leaves a lot of the, the pieces. The book was actually, I got a copy of it, but it was out of print until 2013, and then they re-released it for Die Hard's 25th anniversary. Oh, special. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, I like that. I like that. The author, Roderick Thorpe, was a former police officer, and he worked at a detective agency owned by his father. So he knows this world. Oh, um, I see. The book, The Detective, that came out in 66, actually yes. got turned into a film in 68, starring Frank Sinatra. Oh, blue eyes. <laughs> it was billed as this adult approach to a working police detective. And so, so he's playing John McClane? Well, yeah, the character name is Joe Leland. Joe uh, Leland. But it, yeah, they change it for, for Die Hard. But he's a private investigator checking out this case 
there's a suicide victim that comes later and you realize there's corruption and there's more murder and there's ties to his military it's past. The breadcrumbs, yeah. It's all, it's very noir, Unraveling. it's the detective. But the, the interesting thing about it was it was one of the first times in mainstream cinema that the subject of homosexuality was a mm. crucial part of and was treated with, at least for the time, some layer of nuance or... Credence. That's interesting. Credence, in yeah, yeah. Because the, the first man who's murdered in this web of intrigue is gay, and then they find his live-in lover who confesses, but then it runs deeper than he thinks oh, wow. into his past. So, And then, of course, another well, thing that's happens- that's like way more realer than anyone was trying to be in 68. Right. <laughs> that's amazing. Right. right. I mean, it literally, it came out a year before the Stonewall riots. So it was- That's amazing. Presenting something, yeah. Wow, um, that, that's a, that is real. That's and that might be significant. Only being a year before, that's pre that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I mean, I would assume the gay community would be wildly aware of that after it was out. I mean, yeah. that just because it just doesn't happen. And I'll post a link. I saw a review from a queer blog where they were saying, yes, obviously, in the context of the time, <laughs> it isn't quite as praising of things but sure in, in the context of it it's like it's still a good film and for what it was and what it was doing sure and and, and, we, and to put it in context it's 1968 i mean the fact that it's on screen and presented period is progress so you that it's it's so annoying but it's you're stepping towards it you're still always stepping towards it <laughs> yeah. so yeah i mean it looks archaic to now but to even put the i'm i'm shocked that that was uh, a central part of a story. So yeah, to the so that's the original John. That's the original John McClane as this detective. So then, as far as the actual book, nothing lasts forever. That follows it. What is different and what is the same? It is a much darker book. It's following in this tradition more of a noir. Um, mm. But basically, all the famous action sequences that appear in the film come from the book, where he's crawling through the air conditioning ducts. He drops a bomb down the elevator shaft. He's jumping off of the exploding roof with a fire hose oh, wow. attached to him and then shooting through the window. Of course, the climax where he tapes his the gun to his back, him being barefoot the whole time because of a uh, trick about removing jet lag. That's all there. Oh my gosh. That's mm -hmm. much more than I was even, even anticipating. Because um, yeah. I knew, as you had said briefly, because we don't talk about everything before we do this. I was expecting a couple a couple hits of it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> they brought that. They brought that. Okay, cool. That's much more than I would have really uh, assumed, especially mm -hmm. for that. And that's the sequel book in 70. The sequel book in 79, yeah. 79. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So the other thing that's, I guess, different and happens in literature is the novel is from Joe Leland or John McClane's perspective. Mm -hmm. So there is no cutting to different events. And you get a lot of the backstory from his thoughts and whatnot, which obviously don't translate. But he's right, right, right. he's also more cynical. The events are harsher. So he is an older character. And the big change is Holly in the movie, who is Stephanie in the book, is his daughter who he's going to see. And she oh. invited him because she misses him. But he is this old alcoholic who has an ex-wife who died and, you know, he's got grandkids Ah, okay. And see, that's making sense to me here thematically why they would shift just a little bit uh, for the film, because in the film, he's going to meet up with his estranged wife, who's suddenly now going by her maiden name and not his name, right. even though they're not divorced. And with the seeing the kids tonight, maybe going over to the house and sleeping and seeing the kids right, right. is on the table. And so you're right there. The stakes are on the table. You're right there with John McClane. You want him. You want him to see his kids. That's really what this is all kind of about. So th 
thematically, if you're translating this into a screenplay up onto the screen, it makes sense to start to shift that a little bit around. If this is not quite the dark, if, if he's going to end up with her at the end, she has to be alive. So, right. you know, so we bring her in and the whole thing is about they get separated while she goes off to make a speech and shoes her off and he's, in, he's got his shirt off because he's great because he's jet lagged and then everything starts to happen. So they don't see each other this entire time. By the time they get back together, he's been through complete hell and yeah. looking like a completely different person. Well, and also with the book, Stephanie, the daughter, she is it, it, tying into the noir. Everything's terrible. She's sort of a lost cause in the sense of like the company that they're working for. It's actually terrorists who are trying to stop the thing they're doing in South America. Mm-hmm. It's company investing in the Chilean government conspiracy, etc. Whereas in the movie, they're pretending to be terrorists and they're just really it's good. All a ruse. Yes, yes. Yeah. They're yeah. trying to fake This is her, actually, you know. oh, society's terrible. My daughter is involved in all this crazy criminal activity or potential criminal activity, etc. And so at the end of the book, Gruber falls off in the same way, but he still holds on to her and his daughter goes with him. So they both die, the main villain and his daughter. Oh my god. At the end of the book. And then so then Leland the John McClane character goes on a rampage, killing the rest of the terrorists, gets outside, and the police captain gets shot by Carl. No! <laughs> yeah. No, it's <laughs> so the it flipped. opposite. I know, it flips <laughs> the other way. And Leland is injured and sad, and it's like, is he going to make it in the hospital? Oh like, it just God. is a horrible, depressing ending. Hence the title, Nothing Lasts Forever. And it's just like, it's the end of this policeman detective's career what has it cost him in his life? You know, that kind of thing. All I'm thinking about right now is I'm, I'm just, my lights are going off because in a couple episodes ago, we talked about uh, adapting Jurassic Park from the novel to the screenplay and how amazing that is. And I'm getting those vibes right here and there because they're making very specific thematic choices about the difference of what they're trying to say. This is, this is really, this, they're really, uh, they're really cooking with gas here. They're not <laughs> letting this just fly all over the place and they're not just going off on their own either. They're, look, it's direct directly opposing what's in the book for specific mm-hmm. reasons. Um, well, yeah, so let's talk really about smart. let's talk about the adaptation process here and who wrote it and and, and all yeah. that because it's one of those weird paradoxes of right. like, well, they didn't really know. Like it looks like, oh, of course you do this, but it only looks like that because it worked. Right. right. But here's how <laughs> all those yeah. pieces actually got switched around. And just as some context, so like, for example, the original Rambo film, First Blood, was based on a book, First Blood. Like, this is a trend of the 80s. Right. What is the skeleton yes. of, a, yes. of an action story that we can use and then turn into something else? So this is 1988 is when the film comes out, which is nine years after the book is released. So it's already been bought to be adapted wow. yes, as yes. something in this lump time period of this being popular. And the director, John McTiernan, did Predator the year before. And then he did Hunt for Red October two years after. So this is his wheelhouse. But the writer, Jeb Stewart, so what was going on with him, which is a whirlwind experience, he was young, had a wife who was having her second child, needed money. And and Mm -hmm. he he did have a deal with Disney, but I don't think he was getting paid for it yet. Or it was like he had a six-week period where he could complete work for another studio. So think about that. Like I have six weeks where I need to make some money doing something. Right. And it's got to be done by then. Oh, <laughs> like, my gosh. A lot of like scripts take years to write sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, taking on a screenplay is not just some like, oh, this is gonna, this is going to be fun. I'll be over with it in like a few weeks or a month or two. It's like, it, honestly, I mean, it can take years and years and years to do it right. It's a massive undertaking, whether it's a completely original thought or you're adapting 
or using something based on real life. It's yeah. it's a massive undertaking. So the agent that he has hooks him up with the producing arm of Fox Studios and says, we got this book. We made the predecessor, the detective, take a crack at it. We're pitching it sort of as Rambo in an office building. What do you think? So now here he goes trying to figure out how he's going to adapt this. Because as I've said, the book is about this 60-year-old man who visits his daughter who has corrupt business dealings, and then right. she falls off a building. Like it's a At the outset, <laughs> that doesn't sound like something that he could really sink his teeth into. A real upper. Right. <laughs> so I saw uh, an interview he was talking, and he had a commute from Pasadena to Burbank and then worked basically 18 hours a day there because, like I said, he was uh, still doing his Disney thing and felt on edge the whole time, was having arguments with his wife. So he storms out one day in the six weeks he has to finish this thing and goes for a drive. And he's driving on the freeway, and there's a truck with boxes full of appliances, fridges, and dishwashers and stuff. And it hits something, and one of the fridge boxes goes flying, and he has no time to maneuver out. And so it just smashes into his car oh. while he's going 65 miles an hour down the oh freeway. The box was empty. And so it just hit off and went off his car, but he swerved off to the side. And it was like a crazy oh. near-death experience. It's like, oh, I would oh be dead God, immediately. immediately. Argued, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I argued with my wife 20 minutes before and just stormed out. So he got home, immediately reconciled with his wife, and wrote 35 pages that night. Wow. Because he realized, he's like, it's not about a 60-year-old man, you know, his daughter falling off a building, but it's about this 30-year-old who should have said he's sorry to his wife and then yes. something bad happens. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm so glad you put that up because I thought, what an amazing moment it was. And I said that the couple are having a, a, a bit of a conversational argument and then they split up. She goes to make a speech and then the terrorists hit the room. But right before the terrorists hit the room, you get a moment with uh, McLean in the bathroom and he's really taking it out on himself. It's like, why didn't I just say sorry? Really mature, John. <laughs> And, and I thought, how, well, how incredible for this to be such a manly movie. It's such a beautiful human moment hidden in the middle of a movie that I think people just assume is just some action movie. Yeah. And, and crazy that it came from this guy Jeb's life in, in the six weeks that he had to figure out what this was about. It's like, oh, no, this is about this is personal. And we find that time and again that it has to come from something. Yes. Yes. That he experienced. So he has no experience writing action films. But his wheelhouse is more thrillers. And so this is where we get the twist, I suppose, of the action genre, which we'll talk about mm. at the end, what mm -hmm. it did. But he focuses more on the characters and their reconciliation building to that, not building to an action piece. Right. Because right. he knows that thrillers is more about the characters and the psychology and things as opposed to action films. Right. So that's his pass on the script. He finishes it in, in five and a half weeks, delivers it on Friday in 1987 goes on vacation for the weekend, comes back, voicemail box lit up because they greenlit it on Saturday Whoa! and said, we, we got to do it because he's like, this is just the perfect serendipity of luck and my timing because Fox needed a big summer film for 1988. They didn't have one in the pipeline. This is the yeah. one that got done that he got done in time because he oh had to gosh. go. He was contractually obligated to do the next thing. So they were like, sure, let's do it. Well, it let's, seems. Yeah. And right there at that moment, you have uh, John McTiernan coming off of Predator 1987, a massive, massive, massive hit. And as you were saying with the writer, John McTiernan would describe himself as kind of 
of a savant and somebody who got into the industry and got pegged as like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in for cars and guns and, and action, 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 so that he could get the job. While in all reality, he was a true artist and really cared about people, was a real director. Mm-hmm. This is the smartness of uh, John McTiernan because he has an I'm seeing because I've just watched this movie for the first time. But Predator is a, a lifelong diehard favorite, diehard, diehard favorite of mine that I have known since I have been I've been studying since I was conscious and knowing him uh, and knowing that his affinity for looking for work that turns that says it's one thing to get you invested and then takes you a completely different direction. That's Predator. Predator starts as a Arnold Schwarzenegger military movie. We're going into Cambodia. We're going to get these hostages bouncing across the border before anybody knows we were there. (laughs) And then you get there 50 minutes in the movie. The team you thought was unstoppable is ripped apart and there's an alien hunting them down. It's a completely different movie. It's a horror movie through and through. That's bold. That's crazy. And I think I'm seeing the same taste for material with Die Hard. That makes total sense. He turns right. in Predator. What else you got? This comes out. Oh, oh, it's just an action movie. But look, this is a real character. And there's a real human drama at the center of this about a family and about a husband and wife. And regret um, and everything else. Yeah. And it completely takes you off on this other, on this crazy, crazy, crazy movie worthy adventure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the production process here, because now, like you said, it is a character based piece disguised as an action movie. They already made a movie with this character, Fox did, and this is technically based on the sequel book. And so as a part of the obligations of that, the person that was this character is contractually obligated to perform. That was Frank Sinatra, but the character before was, like I said, older. So Frank Sinatra is 73 now and does not fit (laughs) the material at all, but they had to offer it to him. Just imagine it for five seconds. Imagine the movie is exactly the same, but there's a 73-year-old Frank Sinatra trying to like really convince the audience that this is his wife. Yeah. <laughs> he's smart and declined, but it's like he could have said yes, and then they would have had to figure out how to make it with him. Oh, God. But he said, he said no. How so gracious. That, yeah. <laughs> they're trying to get everybody that's anybody in the action game. They offered it to Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course. But it's interesting because they mention it to him too, which I think is so funny. They meant, they, I, I think at one point McLean is talking to him. So I was like, I feel like Arnold in some crazy action movie, <laughs> which, which John McTiernan had just directed. Right. <laughs> but Arnold is trying to break into comedy, doing the opposite of what people are doing, where so Twins comes out the same year as Die oh, Hard. Yes. So this oh, is why man. he's not interested in this. But they hit up everybody. They hit up Sylvester, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Paul Newman. Nobody wanted to do it. Mm. And Willis, who they ended up getting, is known for TV at the time. So this is his first big break. He's yeah, not this an is it. This guy. is why he is who he is, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. He The only thing he was in before was a film that did terrible that nobody remembers and a rom-com TV series called Moonlighting. And that's what he was mm-hmm. doing when they got him for this. Oh, man. But And also, there was a very clear distinction between film and TV actors at the time. So you would yes. get if you got much, a TV much, actor much more so than now that 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 road has been completely conflated. They blur all the time in in one side out the other. That was so so mm-hmm. so different. Uh, that was so different in the eighties. Yeah, and if you got a TV actor, it'd be like, oh, well, so is this a TV movie? Like, is this the quality? It was a very different. People world. thought the exact same thing about uh, Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox because mm-hmm. he was on TV at the at the time too, and that became such a scheduling conflict with them too. But that right. that that wasn't a good thing. 
seen as like a, a great thing at the time, just by general audiences and the general uh, upper echelons of the studios. Right. So speaking of the scheduling stuff, this moonlighting show he's doing, the, his co-star, Sybil Shepard, became pregnant. So they shut down production for 11 weeks so he can do this movie. So he's like, sure. Wow. And they, the, the whole big scuttlebutt at the time was they gave him $5 million, which was unheard of at the time. The closest that people got, Dustin Hoffman got something for Tootsie. Robert Redford did like big movie stars, big, big movie stars that had been movie stars for a while right. were getting close to that or they were getting three million. But how is and this so guy? They, this, Yeah, they offer uh, this TV actor who has no other credits to his name more than any of that. Right. And so the reason the hell is, of an audition. <laughs> well, they said I, I had seen a, a cynical approach to it. And it's like, if it doesn't work, then that's what justifies it. So we can say, oh, well, this is where it all went. And, and it's his fault kind of thing. Like oh they could God. put it on somebody else. What but if it does? Strategy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They were setting him up to just, yeah, well, it was his fault. It wasn't good. <laughs> and God, we oh. paid him way too much. But, but they needed something also to get in the headlines for it. And they needed something. But of course, people in the industry hated it. Because it's like, well, if this random guy is getting it, you know, Dustin Hoffman has to get seven million the next time. Oh, man. Oh, so man. that's uh, maybe also in terms of legacy. This is the start of this forever escalating Robert Downey Jr. getting paid 30 million. You know, oh, interesting. Oh, it became an arms race of what star is going to get paid. When somebody more. breaks the line and then everybody's mm -hmm. feeling hurt. Yeah. <laughs> gotta go. Well, I got to keep raising the bar. So this was the, yeah. this In was endless the progress. <laughs> right. <laughs> Blame Die Hard for it. <laughs> and then also Alan Rickman, who is the villain, he had never been in a movie before. This is his first film. Oh my gosh, I had I didn't even realize that. The, one of the casting directors had seen him as a villain in a Broadway show. He was oh, doing man. mostly theater, and they said, well, you should do this. So then, of course, this, he's iconically known. Also, because the book is only from the main character's perspective, there's a lot that we don't know about the villain. You only get him from the radio. But well, in the movie, of course, they can Very interesting, because as we were watching it, we were appreciating the discovery of the plot. I think that's key to keeping interest here about what's going on is because we don't know what's happening. And mm -hmm. we're discovering it along the way. When it comes down to the to the terrorists, to the to the hostages, to the mm -hmm. police, to uh, McLean himself, his wife, all everybody is giving a, a each has a little piece to add to the pot to tell you more about what's going on and it keeps turning mm -hmm. and it keeps turning. And so the market I mean, so I think it's a I think it's a really brilliant screenplay. I mean and I where, can't understate that enough. So where some of that comes from, now there's a rewrite being done, and this is the person I mentioned before who was talking sillily about how it's Christmassy is uh, Stephen D'Souza. And he comes on to do a rewrite of it. And he had prior experience with action and comedy. So this is where that layer of the screenplay comes in. Yes. And a yes, thing that he yes. had said in an interview that I saw, he had approached the story as if Gruber, the villain, was the protagonist, which is always a great way to think of things. It's like, how yeah. is he driving the narrative? What would happen if he wasn't there? Well, then they would just get together and maybe he would re reconcile with his wife or not. But then this creates all of that. So right. he he added a lot of depth in terms of that character. And this is sort of a renegade trying to get it cobbled together, random TV actor who does rom-coms thing. So it wasn't uh, 
this high, you know, high budget I mean, legacy production. So they, the big witnessing thing, a breakout on screen. I mean, that's what it really uh, yeah. amounts to because when this movie starts, he's that TV character. You think, you know, okay, he's just a dude. He's just a guy. He's just a cop. And over the course of two hours, he becomes an action superstar. And, mm-hmm. and it is believable in these types of movies. And when I say these types of movies, this is kind of what we're trying to point out is that this kind of set what action movies were going to be henceforth. And we, it gets judged based on what we think of an action movie now, 30 years later. At the time, no, this, this is really staking a new claim. And it has a lot beneath the surface that mm-hmm. I mean I'm looking at the poster right now and you'd never know it's a, it's a Christmas movie but it, but it really really it really is what a crazy mm-hmm. thing but I, I'm, I'm loving the os- just the osmosis of creativity here it's from mm-hmm. this book Frank Sinatra <laughs> uh, we got this character which, I mean it's, it's this is really this is really alive some of the cornucopia of ideas and hodgepodge that gets put together with it all Willis was still on Moonlighting that TV show even though they were on a break, that he he still was filming it for the first week when they were filming Die Hard. So he would show up at the moonlighting set, film for up to ten hours, and then film Die Hard at night. Wow! So oh a lot God. of the in the writing side of things, they were like, "We got to give him some sort of a break," and so we have to film some things that don't involve him and give him some days off so he can sleep. So that's where you get a lot of the stuff with the wife or with. Gruber or with these other characters the is like, becomes a major yeah, character. Yeah, exactly. The one that first rolls up in the police car and they get shot up and then he becomes the, the main like mm-hmm. link to McLean up in the building uh, with the CB yeah. radio who you and then he ends up being influential at the end, which he's they flop the, directly. He's in the book a little bit. And but even the uh, the limo driver who ends up being a big piece of it disappears after the first scene of the book. And he oh, gets and more- see, yeah, and I'm so happy that, and that, and that goes to show you what a smart screenplay that is, because that was a disposable piece in the novel, mm-hmm. not in a movie. You can't do that with a movie. You don't. Have, you have a, such a limited amount of time, and you have so little time to actually get people's attention. I knew from the moment I saw what they were doing with this driver that he's going to be influential by the end mm-hmm. of it. And I was starting to wonder by midway. I was like, is he going to come back? And it was like, oh, we haven't cut back to him in a minute, but he does, and he comes. And we knew it. Me and my fiance both were like, we cannot wait to see this driver save the day, and he absolutely. Yeah does just because we know that that's what's got to happen based on what we're being presented in the story. But like I said, a lot of this stuff was happening because of a technical or a logistical thing with Bruce Willis. Like the ending was not finalized when enabling constraints. That's all I can say. When the film had begun, they didn't know how it was going to end. And they had filmed things that were going to mess with the continuity before. So they were like trying. It was all a hodgepodge when they were filming it. And the actors were given room to improvise lines or like. Just like lots of logistical stuff that was all twisted around, one of which being they filmed at the Fox Plaza because it was available and it was Fox and it was their building that they were building. And it was mostly unoccupied because they hadn't built it all yet. Right. It got it got occupied in eighty eight when the when the movie <laughs> came out. So only five stories were occupied, and then like the construction sites were literally construction sites. They didn't yeah. it was as real as it could be. Wow. But the big stipulation that they had for themselves was that they couldn't film during the day, which is perfect because it all takes place in one oh, night. Oh, beautiful. Oh my gosh. And Bruce Willis <laughs> could not be there during the day. So beautiful. Oh, it all fits together. Day. How perfect. Yeah. And the other thing with the in terms of just keeping things together, Willis did most of his stunts. So did Alan Rickman, the famous thing where he drops off the classic villain falling off the edge. He did that stunt and they dropped him between 20 and 70 feet onto a big airbag kind of thing. And I had seen in an interview, they had said, "Okay, we're going to drop you on three, one, two, and then dropped him. 
to get the <laughs> the, the shot. Got him. <laughs> Got him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My fiance told me as that was happening, he's like, this is famous. This is the moment. <laughs> so, this right here. So, so as I savored the look, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it is pretty. It is pretty amazing to get that real, like the eyes widening. They almost <laughs> just can't. You almost can't fake it. <laughs> But now we have the release of this thing. And just for some context, so this is sequel heaven. This same year, Crocodile Dundee 2 is coming out. Rambo 3 is coming out in May. (laughs) We have a film called Red Heat with Arnold, even though he's doing Twins, the comedy one. And then Clint Eastwood. Found time for that. (laughs) Yeah. Clint Eastwood's fifth Dirty Harry film is also coming out. So (laughs) this is the summer slate where in the world does Die Hard fit Man, in? I can't, I'm thinking about that casting and I'm just going like, no, I don't want Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I don't want Arnold. But I'm not, it's not human. Mm-hmm. And how amazing that you both, this movie is a breakout for both Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. Yeah. I mean, how incredible. <laughs> but you look at the, uh, the metrics of what was going on at the time and Bruce Willis, just because of public sentiment and how he was presenting himself was perceived as arrogant. And he sort of, in the public eye, refused to address that aspect of himself or speak about his personal life hmm. interviews at the time. And maybe he's even still this way, but he's very much like it's about the art and I won't take something for the money and blah, blah, blah. Because again, he's in the news for taking 5 million for it, et cetera. So people, they do the polling and it's like people already don't like him as a person. And then mm-hmm. here he is a nobody in the season of big hunks with lots of muscles right. being action stars. So I'll post well, a link. i on sequels that right. have like a built-in audience. <laughs> right. So I'll post a link because the first posters that came out for this do not include a picture of Bruce Willis, which is insane. It just has a picture of Nakatomi Plaza, like the, 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 uh, really? the building. Yeah. Oh it's a, gosh. yeah, the full page newspaper ad that first came out just has the building as the star, <laughs> the star of Die Hard. The building. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. being in, you know, being a TV coming up to, and you don't know if you want to hinge the whole thing on him or not, but it's almost, gosh, we're really, I mean, that really shows you kind of a step forward as that would be bananas now. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll put, like That's I said, I'll post a link to yeah. it. That's amazing. And then in terms of what happened, it never claimed the number one ranking. It spent 10 weeks in the top five. Oh, my God. Um, so it did earn a bunch of money. It earned $140 million on a $25 million budget. Oh, so that's, huge. I mean, yeah. the people saw it and liked it. So yeah. here's the, the influence and why then that came to be if it looks like, oh, this isn't going to be anything special. Thematically, we've already touched on it, but it's the redemption through violence. And it's, it typifies a blue collar, sort of almost Western cowboy star, which hadn't really been placed in the same way that this film does it i saw it i mean I'm, 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 this is a bit of a stretch but i saw this character john mcclain is really a kind of exorcism of the ego he starts fully clothed and inch by inch he's taking the clothes before anything's happening he's starting to he's revealing himself piece by piece and mm-hmm. he's letting his guard down inch by inch and then stuff starts to happen and then he starts using everything around him to to get by and he starts being resourceful but he's then he's still losing clothes and by the end of this he looks like he's in predator covered in mud basically you know like mm-hmm. i mean i think i'm really there with him as we inch into mm-hmm. what we can now kind of label as just huge action hero franchise state character. Right. But this is really walking you there and showing you 
how that might happen and, you know, over right. the course of a couple hours to somebody who's just really wants his marriage to work. Well, and that's what really created what we see as the action genre flip is because it revitalized it. Like we see Rambo 3 is coming out this year. <laughs> it was due to the fact that, like you said, he is vulnerable, fallible. He's yes. not muscle bound, invincible, ran yes. counter to what everybody saw. He's a normal person, reasonable, average physique, failing personally and professionally. And he has to let all that go. Right. He has to really let it all fly off mm -hmm. and, and, and really boil it down to himself and escape the situation and get done what he needs to get done and get to his wife and get to his kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it re I mean, it really is that. But I think, I think it's so artfully done piece by piece. And uh, even with um, the tropes of the 80s films that this is following, the one-liners by these big hunk action heroes, with John McClane, it's through his sort of a nervous reaction to the situation, exactly. not that he's dominating the situation. Exactly. Destroying exactly. That's what I was and, trying to yeah. say. Better. I was, you said it so much better than I did because it reminded us of when the yippee Kaye moment <laughs> comes up. It, yeah. That, that, I know that line and I've, I, and it's been done and done and redone and it's a classic line. I had never seen the moment before the initial moment. And that line in particular is delivered in its context with such credibility. It flies off the, it is so real. It is not a, zinger it is not a moment <laughs> right. uh, it just is because it is that real mm -hmm. uh and, and it and it's stuck and it's beautiful we were both gobsmacked <laughs> watching it going like no way that's how they pull off that line because it just rolls off the tongue exactly like you say it's his nervous uh doesn't know what and he's just kind of <laughs> rolling with it by now because whatever he's jumped off a building by that you know like yeah uh, I, I i think that's that really is the mark of how good this movie is because any other lesser director any other lesser actor anybody anybody any weak link in this that that moment gets flubbed and cheapened mm -hmm. so now we see there's tons of copycats after and even in the world of film it became a thing that you would use to pitch so it would be like die hard on a blank which just implied a lone hero fighting overwhelming odds yes so just yes, in the next yes. You know, five to ten years under siege is Die Hard on a battleship, Air Force One on a plane, cliffhanger on a mountain, speed on a bus, on <laughs> yeah. air, not just a plane, but a prison plane. So all of these things come from that. And Bruce Willis had even said somebody had pitched him Die Hard on a, in a skyscraper. And he was like, I think we've done that one already. <laughs> <laughs> Like you said about the uh, the iconography of the clothing and the layering of him, the undershirt from Die Hard that he wears is at the American History Museum in the Smithsonian because mm -hmm. that blood and sweat is iconic as far as like being opposite of action heroes seeing. Yes. Um, yes. yes. And yes. what's what's so interesting to me rounding it out. The irony is as it becomes Die Hard 2 through 5, he oh, becomes closer and closer to the 80s action films that it was renouncing in the first place and McLean becomes this invincible killing machine by um, <laughs> by Die Hard 5. I don't think I've seen any of them to be quite honest and and it and this is why we did this because they are just the quintessential action movies, high stakes in an office building. How are we going to get out terrorists or, you know, pre 9-11 <laughs> right. kind of stuff is kind of how I see it. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think there's so much more here than general audiences who aren't acquainted with it would ever know. It's hard to really say that in a way that makes sense. But I mean, at the end of the day, it was uh, nominated for four Academy Awards. So I which mean, got it, beat out all by Roger Rabbit, which comes. Out hey, <laughs> check out our episode on Roger Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, this definitely it, whatever you think about it, as far as the Christmas setting, at least you could say 
John McClane is trying to uphold tradition and society and keeping families together on Christmas. That's the whole. If you <laughs> yeah. if you don't like the action side of it, at least he's trying to do that, which is the the hope of all Christmas movies is that people come together on Christmas. That's that's it. That's the movie, and I think that's such a beautiful thing to make a movie about and make this type of movie about. And and look how classic, how amazing. Thank you, Taylor. Yeah, thank you. This is amazing. Uh, I hope your holidays, everybody, are, are really wonderful. Thank you for spending the year with us. We really, really appreciate it. Check us out on Instagram, at AlliteratePod. Let us know what you're watching over these holidays. Let us know what you're reading. Let us know what's coming out. You never know when we're going to do an episode about it. It doesn't have to be the newest stuff. Look at this. This came out in 1988. I learned a ton. Uh, I hope you guys did, too. Thank you so much. All right. Catch you all next week. Catch you all next week.